Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. One of the most controversial uh, members of the press is my guest tonight, Bernard Goldberg, who used to be with CBS as a newsman for over 25 years and then uh, became more and more bothered with how biased towards the left uh, was the coverage at CBS and generally in the press, both electronic and print. His book, Bias, which appeared a number of years ago, uh, leveled that charge. A new book by Bernard Goldberg appeared a month or two ago. It is, and this is really a title, it is titled um, A Slobbering Love Affair, starring Barack Obama. The true and pathetic story of the torrid romance between Barack Obama and the mainstream media. That's quite a mouthful of a title, and that's quite an interesting accusation. Documented in a way that may persuade you or may rouse your hackles, as it has done for many people. We'll be talking with Bernard Goldberg, dipping deeply into his book, A Slobbery Love Affair, etc., etc., right after the update on this evening's news from Jim Gooder. And we are directly going into conversation with Bernard Goldberg. Let me just check and see whether he's here. Good evening, sir. Thanks for having me on. My great pleasure. I have, of course, uh, been reading your recently published book, A Sober, rather, yes, the full title. There's so many words to the title. A Sobering Love Affair. Slobbering. Slobbering. Did I say sobering? Yeah. A Slobbering, of course, Love Affair, starring Barack Obama, the true paren and pathetic story of the torrid romance between Barack Obama and the mainstream media. You seem to have a complaint about your former uh, colleagues in the American press. I do, but I, I want to make very clear to my friends out there that I don't have a complaint with Barack Obama. Uh, I don't blame him one bit uh, for accepting uh, all the adulation, all the slobbering that was heaped on him uh, during the campaign and, and since. I do have a complaint with people in what we call the mainstream media for falling in love with him. They, this is not the same old media bias story. This time they crossed a very bright line and went from media bias into media activism, which is something akin to judicial activism where judges feel as if they know what's best. In this case, in this case a lot of reporters felt that they knew what was best. And what was best is that they were on a historic mission in their mind, they were on a noble mission, and they thought it was important that this country elect uh, Barack Obama because he was young, he was cool, he was black, and he was liberal. I guarantee you there would have been no slobbering over the first black president had he been a conservative Republican. Why the adjective slobbering rather than uh, enthusiastic or unbalanced or whatever? But slobbering suggests a touch of dementia. Well, I, I don't know if dementia is the word, but the, the reason for the long title and the reason for the word slobbering is because this is almost like a romance novel, the, the kind of language they use. Let me give you three examples. Well, I can tell you what your first example is. You were much affected by what's-his-name with the thrill up his leg. Right. Uh, whether I was, a, a, I was affected the way... I was a, I'm willing to accept that it's funny, along with the other examples I'm, I'm going to give you, except... It's one thing if regular folks fall in love with uh, uh, Barack Obama, which is fine with me. But when journalists fall in love with a politician, I have trouble believing they're capable of covering him. So, so we, why the word slobbering? We have Chris Matthews saying that he just heard Barack Obama speak and he got a thrill running up his leg. 
He's a commentator. He's allowed to comment. No problem there, except that that's not commentary. That's a man crush. Uh, the, the Newsweek ran a story in which they said Barack Obama was tall and handsome and blessed with a weighty baritone. This is getting a little creepy. And then and you then, chose somebody who, I forget what paper he, or magazine he was writing for, who had a, a, a very uh, enthusiastic paragraph about Barack Obama's chest. Yes, that's the third example I was going to give you. It was a page one story in the Washington Post about on Christmas morning about Barack Obama's exercise regimen. You got the full quote there? I have the quote, the, the one-sentence quote. The sun glinted off chiseled pectorals sculpted during four weightlifting sessions each week and a body toned by regular treadmill runs and basketball games. That, that sounds like the <laughs> stuff you read in a romance novel with Fabio on the yes, cover. Hence the word slob, slobbering. But now look, uh, let me put this to you quite directly. Do we not, if you look into the long history of this country and of presidential races or lesser political engagements and the response of the press to those political contests, do we not find even a hundred years back or more a comparable a tilting by the press towards one rather than the opposite candidate? Well, well let's just stick with modern history because it may be in you know 1812 or something, that could be. But in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen uh, the kind of uh, adulation that I saw this time around. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to go back, uh, there's a temptation to say it, it's like Kennedy, because it is a little like Kennedy. It's not like Reagan. Reagan mm -hmm. carried 49 states, but, but people saw him as, as their grandfather, you know, not, not as a young, uh, hip guy the way they saw Kennedy or... Uh, or Barack mm -hmm. Obama, but I think a better analogy might be FDR. FDR in 1940, Franklin Roosevelt in 1940, won an unprecedented third term uh, as president. Never happened in our history before. And, and will, yet, that, and will never first, happen again. They did a, a constitutional amendment to prevent it from happening again. Right, and you know, let's assume the constitutional amendment holds and nobody tries to undo it. But in, in his first two terms, the unemployment rate never went beneath uh, 10%, and for 21 straight months, it was over 20%. And you say to yourself, geez, that's pretty bad. How did they elect him, not just again, but for an unprecedented third term? Well, I think there are two reasons. FDR mesmerized the nation. He was magic. And, and the second reason was he always had Hoover to blame for what went wrong. Cut fast forward to today. I think Barack Obama has mesmerized the nation. I think he's magic. He's a he's a just a superb uh, campaigner and, and 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 speaker, and he's got George Bush to blame for what went wrong. Are you the author of the very term Bush derangement syndrome? No, Charles Krautheimer. That's where it comes from. Yeah, Charles Krautheimer is not only a columnist but a a he he was a Harvard trained psychiatrist. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, so he came up with the term and. And uh, that's that's where that came from. And the animus against Bush had a great deal to do with the way in which the press played Obama. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Uh, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed, a couple of weeks ago by a fellow named Peter Berkowitz, who's a scholar out on the West Coast. And he said, at first blush, you would think that Bush hatred and Obama adulation are two 
different things. He said, but they're two sides of the same coin, and they both reside inside the same soul in that, in that neither tolerates dissent. If you don't think, as far as a liberal is concerned, and I don't mean all liberals, I want to make that very clear, but as far as people on the left are concerned, let's put it that way, if you don't hate George Bush, you're contemptible. And if you don't love Barack Obama, you're contemptible. Both of them appeal to a kind of uh, unthinking passion because neither of them is a reasonable point of view. But Bush hatred was already fully launched and had uh, affected uh, millions of Americans at the very time that uh, Obama declared his candidacy. And the main uh, achievement that he announced to the country was that he had spoken against the Iraq war early on. In fact, it was before he even went to the Senate. It was one speech that otherwise would have gone virtually unremarked in the adults of American journalism. But it, it's something that could be trotted out at the moment to define him against Bush. Right. And, and he, 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 made, he took that position, not in the United States Senate, where he would have had to vote on the issue, and, no, he was and, a member of the Illinois perfect. State Senate at the time, giving a speech in Chicago. Right. Well, you know, this, the, the Illinois State, the Illinois Senate didn't have much of a say in whether we went to war in Iraq. And, to be and sure. the reason I'm saying that is because I'm not at all sure how Barack Obama would have voted if he got, if he had to vote in the Senate. He's a very practical guy, and I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. But if uh, if if, it, if if there was a political reason to vote for uh, the war, he might have. As a matter of fact, Hillary Clinton did. She's hardly a, a right winger, and and uh, the, uh, an argument I make in this book, a slobbering love affair, is that the biggest loser uh, in this whole thing is Hillary Clinton, because if the media hadn't slobbered over Barack Obama the way they did, if they had covered the Reverend Wright a little earlier than they did. Hillary Clinton almost certainly would have won the nomination and probably had become president of the United States. Yeah, a very important point uh, about your book and about the argument you present is that you're not merely criticizing the press for favoring Obama over McCain. You're criticizing them for having virtually decided the outcome of the Democratic primaries. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. And as a matter of fact, I don't even blame the media for beating John McCain. I, I, there's a chapter in the book called Who Beat John McCain?, and the answer is, A, John McCain beat John yeah. McCain. He was a terrible candidate. Uh, B, George Bush beat John McCain. His popularity was in the, you know, in, the, in the gutter, and he was an albatross around John McCain's neck. He got us into a long, unpopular war, and the American people don't like wars like that. The Republican Party beat John McCain. They took over power in 2000. They were the adults. And they spent money like Imelda Marcos in a shoe store. Yeah. And George Bush didn't veto a single spending bill. And then the economic collapse. And uh, then the economic collapse was the, was the final nail in the sure. coffin. Right. So the outcome was virtually inevitable. All the same, the uh, difference between the popular, uh, um, the popular quotas for each of the two candidates is not that great. What was it, about a 54 to 46 uh, uh, balance in the election? 52.9, I think. Less than that. Yeah. yeah, to 47, right. Yeah. Uh, and so you're convinced the press made the difference. Well, I, I think John McCain lost the election. I want to make that clear. Ah, he, mm -hmm. he, that's all on John McCain. Uh, but in, in terms of Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama, why wouldn't the media have, if they were going to put a thumb on the scale the way they had in the past, for just about every Democratic candidate, you know, Dukakis or Mondale or 
John Kerry or whoever. Liberal Democratic uh, reporters uh, put a thumb on the scale for liberal Democratic politicians. And, and even journalists acknowledge that. I, I quote a few in the book who, who acknowledge that. But why not support Hillary over Barack Obama? And I think the reason is that in liberal elite circles, especially inside the media, race trumps gender. It, in, a, in plain English, it was more important to help help elect the first black president than the first woman president. I said as his rise began that one of the things that worked very well for him is that he was, and this offended some people when I said it, he was the great tan hope, meaning uh, by tan rather than black. Yeah, yeah. He was black, but not so black that uh, liberal Americans who are still rather ambivalent and confused about in their racial attitudes would not be put off. He was a rather white-looking black guy. And that made him all the more acceptable for those who wanted to to somehow soothe uh, such residual white guilt as they've carried as part of their liberal package. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, of course, he is he was and is very skillful in uh, his public comportment. Oh, he's he's, he's fantastic. Uh, skillful doesn't do it justice. I mean, he's really great. Uh, and, well, and, what is it about the style? What is it about the persona that so uh, wins the American public and, or in, wins the American press? In we live in the United States of entertainment. Yeah. And in the United States of entertainment, here you have a guy who's – remember the four things I mentioned before, that he was young, cool, black, and liberal. Well, he, I might not have mentioned it, but let me mention it if I didn't. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, he had four things going for him as far as reporters were concerned. He was young. He was – yeah, I did mention he was you young, know. he was he was cool, he was black and liberal. Let's of all of those, the, uh, of all of those, cool is the most most interesting to exactly. me. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, first of all, he wasn't he wasn't old like McCain. A split screen TV. McCain was yesterday. Barack Obama was tomorrow. Mm. The American people rarely vote for yesterday, but he was cool. He was cool, and and people like that. Let's go a little closer in on that. What do we mean by cool in this context? Well, sometimes you know, sometimes you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah. John McCain isn't cool. Barack Obama is cool. Uh, John McCain is cuddly at best. At, at best, and I don't even know if I'd go that far. To be right. honest with you, <laughs> uh, Walter Mondale isn't cool. John Kerry isn't cool. Certainly not. Jimmy Carter isn't cool, and these are all liberal Democrats. Yeah. But, but John JFK was cool. I mean, it, they just carry themselves a certain way. They, they, they don't look like politicians, and that's a very good thing not to look like. They glide with ease, and they don't get ruffled. They don't seem to get visibly angry, and uh, the facial expression looks composed. And of course, the uh, the frame of the the body itself is indeed yes, it, athletic with good pecs. I very, guess. I mean, that's a very good point because if you watched it. Uh, if you watch the campaign on television and you shut the sound off, yeah. in, in other words, the content meant nothing at this point, you still knew he was cool because of precisely what you just said, you know, the way he carried himself. Uh, and, and in a culture that, that uh, uh, thinks so much of, of uh, entertainment, that's not a small factor. Well, uh this is the country that early, much earlier on elected William Howard Taft as president, later on re-elected Harry Truman. These were not uh, exemplars 
of, of contemporary cool, were they? No, they weren't, but we didn't live in the United States of Entertainment then. I mean, it was a very different time. As a matter of fact, in those times, not only could Barack Obama not get the nomination or get elected because of his race, yeah. but he couldn't get elected because of his cool. I mean, you know, at certain periods in history, certain things work and other things don't. He worked at this time in our history. You know, um, I met Barack Obama when he came on this very radio program uh, at the time of the publication of his um, his first book. Uh, and it's a story I've told often to uh, friends. Uh, he came in for a solo appearance. It was a short program, just about an hour. I think it came after a ball game, just as our program tonight does. And I found, uh, I looked at the book, read a good portion of it, uh, the background uh, about Harvard and so on, and his background is, as um, a kid growing up in Hawaii. All of that was of interest to me. And um, uh, we did the program. He seemed, in a way, in a sense, cool or composed. He spoke with a, an attractive baritone voice. But uh, I've been doing this program for over 30 years, and I've seen lots of interesting people come through the studio. And I was not uh, overwhelmed by uh, his right. presence, uh, but he certainly made a decent guest and was a creditable uh, person. He was then just announcing to run for the state senate right. in Illinois. But as he left, right after he left, my producer, who was a bright young fellow, only two years out of Yale where he got his bachelor's degree, um, seemed smitten. Exactly. said to me as, as, as Obama left the studio, wherever, these were literally the words, wherever that man is going, I want to go with him. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, there's something about this guy. He's going far. And Greg Jacobs, who's said this to me, and is now an independent television producer, was um, uh, <laughs> more perspicacious or more, more visionary about uh, the United States of entertainment, perhaps, right. uh, than I was at the time. Well, that's, a great, that's a great story because the position of your producer turned out to be the position of much of the mainstream media who, who admired the very same things that he noticed. Now, I, I mean, I like the story a lot because you, you, you've had other people in the studio. And I'm an older he, guy. Yeah, he seemed like okay, but he didn't blow you away or anything. I mean, he, he wasn't that impressive. But, I had the thought this guy's going to make it into the state Senate. Right. And he might, might wind up in Congress. Someday. But the 24-year-old saw something different That's than you quite saw. So. Quite so. And, and, and the media uh, latched on to that same something different. And, and it, it, they would have liked him if he were white, but not nearly as much. Uh, and if he were white, they, I don't think they would have slobbered over him. They would have put the traditional thumb on the scale. Well, is this a reason why we should, in fact, uh, welcome... Uh, the reality that Barack Obama is now the president of the United States. It is an historic first. It is a transformation somehow of our political history uh, for a, uh, a, a someone who's officially classified as a black man or as an African-American is now the president of the United States. Yeah, and, and I want to make, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it gives me an opportunity to say conservatives appreciate the historical significance of this election too. Liberals don't have a monopoly on appreciating the historical significance of the election. But Barack Obama did not run, to his credit, he did not run as a black candidate. He can't govern as the black president. We don't have a title called black president of the United States. And that's why he needs to be held accountable 
as the president of the United States. Which raises a very interesting question. Not uh, going from uh, what the press did during the primary races and then during the uh, the election uh, uh, face-off between the two main candidates, but what is the press doing now that uh, Obama is in office and has been there for uh, literally almost a month? We're about two days away from the first first month anniversary of his inauguration. Right? Uh, are they still infatuated with him so that they are not giving us the true story? Well. There are two scenarios that are going to pl one of two scenarios that are going to play out. Uh, one is that, uh, frankly, I I'll be blunt, that he's too historically important to fail. That he's too important, he's too big to fail. And if if that scenario plays out, then I think the media will will frame lots of things that go wrong. And I hope nothing goes wrong. I want to make that clear. But if, if the stimulus package, for instance, doesn't work, and if it turns out to be a trillion-dollar mistake, I think, I think if scenario one takes place, we're going to hear a lot about George Bush being the blame for this, and Barack Obama did the best he could. If, on the other hand, the American people uh, say, this isn't working, I'm still out of work, uh, the economy hasn't gotten any better, stock market is still in the, you know, is still in this... 7,500 range instead of the 14,000 range. I'm losing money. And if the people decide he's not the Messiah that the media portrayed him as, he can't walk on water, if they turn on him, and by the way, I'm reminded that Jimmy Carter came into office immensely popular. Oh, yes. and when the people turned on Jimmy Carter, they turned on him in a big way. So if that happens, then the question is going to be, what's the media going to do then? Are they going to follow the people, middle Americans, or are they going to stick with you know, their original template, which is he's, he's our guy and he's too big to fail? I'm willing to say the jury is out. Well, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't think the first news conference, though, was as hard-hitting as it might have been. Well, it was I a mean, very odd news conference. It was essentially a speech. Yeah, the first answer went something like 10 minutes or something. 15. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I think he'll learn from that. So I'm willing to say, as a show, it wasn't a very good show, and, and he'll learn from that. But... There weren't a lot of at one point Barack Obama, for instance, said there's too much ideological rigidity in Washington. Okay, it would have been a great question after he said that to, to ask him if you feel that way. Why did you give the stimulus package to the most ideologically rigid people in your party to write? You gave you gave that package to the most liberal Democrats in the House of Representatives. Nobody asked that. Nobody went down a list of things in, in this thousand page bill that just about everybody agrees oh, on that first press jobs. In that first press conference he had nothing but soft lobs from the reporter sitting there. Uh, uh, well that that may be a hint uh, answering your question about which way they're going to go. Well but we, it's, but it's early on isn't it? Yeah that's why I say I'm willing to say the jury's out. You you said uh, a minute or two ago uh, this trillion dollar investment uh, in uh, uh, the new program to restore the economy. Actually uh, what came to my mind earlier today, I was writing something for our blog, miltspile.com, which can be seen by anybody who wants to go to it this very night, uh, miltspile.com, and I was uh, describing a story that I reprinted there, and uh, I made the point, I, I, I headlined it, uh, a trillion here and a trillion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money, right. parodying uh, Everett Dirksen of years ago, because we're now, we're now really up to two trillion.
Right, right. Well, look, I, I, I want to make clear, you know, I, I live in this country too. I hope it works. I, I, I'm concerned that if it doesn't, where's the media going to be at that point? You know, that's what I'm concerned about. You and, know, that's what, and that's what my liberal friends out there should be concerned about too. You know, I, I have found, the book came out a few weeks ago. It premiered on the New York Times list at number two, which indicates to me that it's resonating with regular folks out there. But I've encountered several liberals, uh, callers mainly uh, to shows, who are as closed-minded as can be. It's like you can't – I have made as clear as I can that this is not an anti-Barack Obama book. It's an anti-media book. And yet you can't say anything without them getting upset. I have never seen a sensitivity like this. It's, it's, it's really spooky. It's creepy. That, that, that it's almost as if, and I used the word Messiah before, that the media created this deity, Saint Barak, and a lot of people have bought into it. And I think this gets back to something you very perceptively said earlier. This is also a result of hating George Bush with a passion. I don't. I think if if I think if if the very same people, it's the very same people who hated George Bush the most that loved Barack Obama the most. The very same people. Well, I've got to read something to you, which will not surprise you. You may even have seen it. Uh, this is uh, somebody responding to you on one of, uh, I suppose, dozens of uh, uh, email, or rather, of, uh, of blog sites. Uh, this one is from uh, mediabistro.com. Um, and this fellow says, I have to edit at one or two points. Bernard Goldberg uh, is one of the most corrupt pieces of blank you can find anywhere in the national media. He is a disgrace to journalism. People like him, Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh, are so jealous of our new president, uh, they are upset because the new media, uh, because the media didn't carry the water for the discredited GOP this time around. President Obama ran the best campaign in the history of the United States of America, and it's not the media's fault for covering that. Ordinary Americans love Obama, so it would be unfair for the media not to represent that in the way they covered him. How come they never complained when Bush was getting his free ride in the early days of his presidency? They are shameless political hacks, that means people like you, yeah. who have been exposed like fish out of water. People like them don't matter anymore. They make a dwindling lunatic fringe. America will shine again under President Obama, and the media has a responsibility to make sure that this presidency succeeds. It's their patriotic duty. God bless President Obama, and God bless the United States of America. Let's leave out the considerable ignorance of that post. You know, I mean, by the way, the Internet is a great place, and it's a terrible place. It's, it, the terrible part is that any moron can write anything he wants, and it goes around the world. But, so let's leave out 99% of the ignorance of that statement. There was an interesting line in there about, um, and I wasn't aware of that because I don't, I don't read that stuff, but the interesting line about that the American people liked him a lot and therefore the media should have covered it that way. Do and you, did do cover you have it. the line? And did cover it that way. That's what he's saying. Yeah, right? okay. Well, let's, let's just say, you see, I mean, that is so shallow and so, so dumb that the, the response to that is easy. Let's just imagine that David Duke ran in an election uh, against Martin Luther King. And he ran in this election in a certain part of the country where David Duke was wildly popular. 
does that mean that the media should have reflected the feelings of, and by the way, I'm not comparing in any way, obviously, Barack Obama to David Duke. I'm just saying that, that just because somebody is popular, that shouldn't affect the media at all. I mean, at all. I, don't, I, I want to emphasize the at all part. It doesn't matter if the person is popular with the American people. It matters in terms of the election. It matters to the American people. But it shouldn't matter at all to journalists because journalists should just cover the election and not be smitten the way voters are smitten. Voters are entitled to be smitten. So, so I'm taking that one sentence out because that, that's something yeah. that, that speaks about journalism. The rest of it is, you know, I, I'm part of a lunatic fringe. I worked at CBS News. I, I feel funny even defending myself against that kind of stupid stuff, but I worked at CBS News for 28 years. I've written five books. All of them are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, three of them were, written, were published by liberal publishing houses. Uh, a li liberal, yeah, li plural, liberal publishing houses. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I've received recognition from the establishment of mainstream journalism. I was never once accused of having uh, any kind of political bias in 28 years at CBS News. Uh, but people see things from their own perspective. I'm sure that that person who sees me as part of a lunatic fringe doesn't see Keith Olbermann, for instance, as part yeah. of a lunatic fringe. The interesting question uh, that I pose to you even now, just as we're about to pause for an update on the news, and then I hope we can come to it directly, is uh, in your earlier book, uh, Bias, you characterize the American uh, journalistic community generally as tilted significantly to the left. Uh, it's even more so. They've crossed the line and gone from mere bias towards a strong advocacy, you say. Advocacy, the, yeah, the, activism. And activism. The basic question, of course, is why is the American left that, why is the American journalistic core that far to the left? For that matter, I would ask, as an academic who's been a university professor for most of his life, why is the American uh, academic, uh, why, why is the uh, academicus uh, Americanensis so far tilted towards the left, at least in the social sciences and the humanities. I want to persist with all of that with you, uh, that is to say, with Bernard Goldberg, author of A, Slubber, A Slobbering Love Affair, directly after the update on the evening's news from Paula Cooper. My guest tonight is Bernard Goldberg, a distinguished American journalist who served for some 27 or 28 years at CBS News. And he is the author of the book published only within the month, I think, uh, titled A Slobbering Love Affair, the true and pathetic story of the torrid romance between Barack Obama and the mainstream media. Bernie, to put my, what I was uh, groping towards a moment ago, to put it uh, more uh, succinctly, or at least more uh, clearly, uh, you certainly represent the American press as ideologically tilted uh, towards the left, indeed quite leftish in general ideological orientation. I see the American Humanities and Social Science Professoriate as similarly tilted. How did they get that way? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I've said that the only institution in America that's, that's further to the left than, than the mainstream media is academia. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. I, look, I, I think that certain professions attract certain kinds of people. And Let's talk about journalism, but it would hold true for, for uh, universities also. Uh, 
there's no sign on the newsroom door that says conservatives need not apply. Uh, but liberal people tend to go into uh, the arts in the broadest sense, uh, the, the painting arts, the dancing arts, the writing arts, including journalism. So there's a chapter in the book about solutions, and I used to kid about this. I used to say this tongue-in-cheek. I didn't mean it, but now I'm serious about it. We need an affirmative action program for the smallest minority in the American newsroom. And by the way, you can, you can substitute newsroom for academia. It, it holds mm -hmm. up for both. You need a, an affirmative action program for the smallest minority in, in these groups, and that's conservatives. Because after decades of an obsession and a devotion to diversity in the newsroom, we've wound up with white liberals and black liberals, male liberals and female liberals, gay liberals and straight liberals, Latino liberals and Asian liberals. And that's all fine as far as it goes. It's not a good thing to have all the news coming from a white male perspective. Uh, but it doesn't go far enough. Would you say that there's also a normative system of oppressive political correctness so that if someone does deviate or vary from the received liberal uh, attitudes, uh, he or she is going to be rather reluctant to speak up or to act on Ab that absolutely. in the work that they do? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in February of 1996, after talking privately, quietly, behind the scenes for about a decade about uh, what I saw as examples of liberal bias and getting absolutely nowhere with it at CBS News, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about it. Mm -hmm. Now, you would, think, you would think that since journalists look down everybody's throat for a living, <laughs> they look down the throat of uh, political people, God knows they do that, uh, business people, military people, sports people, uh, church people, you would think they might be open-minded when somebody looked down their throat, you know? Well, no, no way. Uh, after the op-ed Oh, came they, out your the, colleagues jumped you at CBS. Oh, I was, I, I was literally, and I mean this literally, called a traitor. Yeah. Now, these are people who don't call real traitors a traitor, but they were calling me a traitor. And what I had done was I had written about liberal bias, uh, and I wasn't even, I mean, nobody had accused me of, of any right-wing biases when I was at CBS. I, I think I played it pretty straight. Uh, well, you defined yourself as... I saw as, this, and it was wrong. Haven't you, have you actually defined yourself as a liberal at some point in your life? I did. I, I described myself as an old-fashioned liberal, and I yeah. said I'm a liberal the way liberals used to be, uh, before Al Franken and before Michael Moore. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do see myself. You know, I did see myself that way, but I must say, even since I said that, you know, uh, the left just keeps moving further and further to the left. And whether I've moved to the right or not, I'm, I wind up on the right because they've moved further to the left. Of course, you know the argument you get from journalists probably and from professors certainly when you say, how come this profession is essentially left tilted in ideology and in practical political choice? The argument you get is, well, it's because this profession attracts uh, people of higher intelligence. Yeah, I know. I've heard that. I've heard that, and you know, you want to laugh at that, except the arrogance is, is just jaw-dropping. Uh, but what they're really, they're really saying something very important there, very wrong, but very important. You see, I simply think my liberal friends are wrong about a lot of things. I think they're well-intentioned very often, but wrong. They think conservatives are morally inferior, not simply wrong. 
So when when a when a professor or a head of a department says what they said to you, you know, and answer that, they really don't think conservatives are all that smart. You know, they don't think conservatives are people who care about ideas. Liberals are the ones who say they hate stereotypes, but they stereotype conservatives pretty damn well. And and I don't I don't think they realize how silly they look when they do that. Now, uh, coming back to your critique of the way the press handled the presidential campaign, uh, you um, assert in the book, and you offer some evidence of this, that quite apart from your judgment, there are, quote, objective studies undertaken by neutral yeah. organizations, which essentially confirm uh, your diagnosis or confirm yeah, that, your accusation. That's very important. It's very important because this well, isn't... Give us some of those studies, if you if you could. Well... Uh, I'm flipping in the book to uh, to that part, but there were impartial groups. These were uh, the Center for Pew Research Center, this uh, mm -hmm. Project for Excellence in Journalism, groups like that, and and they they looked at they looked. I mean, these people count like every reference to the candidates uh, on both sides, and they came to the conclusion that the media was was way way more favorable to Barack Obama than it was to uh, to John McCain. In other words, it was just obvious by people who, who counted, you know, the references. It was it was obvious to the ombudsman from the Washington Post who, who did a piece right after the election about how how the post was tilted uh, in favor of, of Barack Obama. What are some of the instances of the of, of the visible tilting in well, terms of particular reportage? Well, the three that I mentioned earlier, the the thrill running up my sure. leg, the, the, that just the chiseled pectorals. The, the New York Times ran a page one story uh, about uh, hinting, hinting at, at a sexual affair yes. between John McCain and a female lobbyist. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but on Friday morning they're going to run a clarification based on a settlement uh, of this lobbyist who sued the New York Times. And they are running a clarification saying, we never intended to suggest there was a sexual affair and if anybody got that impression, basically, the, sorry. The hell they didn't. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm I with read you. That, I read that story. It was obvious that that now, was the, that was that the was, intimation. That was page one uh, of, the, of the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times published an op-ed by Barack Obama about uh, the war in Iraq. When John McCain submitted one, they told him they wanted him to, to rewrite it. All three network anchors went overseas with Barack Obama and exactly no network anchors went overseas with uh, John McCain. And here's a real important statistic. Here's a real important one. The Pew Research Center, again, nonpartisan, down-the-middle group, asked registered voters a very simple question. Who do you think the media wants to win this election? Referring to the mainstream media. 90%, 90% of Republicans said the media wants Barack Obama to win. Let's forget them. They're Republicans. We know what they're going to say. Forget it. But 62% of Democrats, and coincidentally, 62% also of independents, said the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So when, when, I, when you read a, a posting from that lunatic who, who said I was you know, fringe and, and you couldn't even use some of the language that he used, I say, you know what, my friend, referring to that person, you know what, your argument isn't with me. Your argument is with the American people, because Republicans, Democrats, and independents 
a majority of all of those groups, saw what I saw, that the media was in the tank for Barack Obama. They all saw it. And, the, you know, if you have a beef, it's not with me. It's with the American people. Now, Bernie, you want the news to be fair and balanced, surely. Yeah, uh, I don't want to see any, I don't want a conservative newscast, that's for sure. And we're going to have a brief interval for uh, uh, fair and balanced news at uh, 1030 tonight. But first, we have some fair and balanced commercials coming up. And right after that, I want to get to something else that you touch on in the book, but that we have not yet discussed. And that is the attitude towards um, open expression of critical commentary by uh, the press or by uh, anyone with uh, access to the public, the attitude towards such people by uh, the politicians themselves, and particularly by the uh, Obama campaign when it was a campaign, and now the Obama presidency, and whether we've got anything to worry about there. What I have in mind, obviously, is the fairness doctrine, or more likely the fairness doctrine by another name and by another method, which lots of people are quite worried about. We'll return to all of that with Bernard Goldberg, author of a slobbering love affair, right after we pause for these words. And we return to Bernard Goldberg. We are drawing from his recently published book, A Slobbering Love Affair, full subtitle, True, Peren, and Pathetic, close Peren, uh, uh, the true and pathetic story of the torrid romance between Barack Obama and the mainstream media. We've been talking about the press's attitude towards Obama. Uh, or towards the Obama campaign, to be sure. I think it's time to turn and reverse that and ask, what was the Obama campaign's attitude toward the press, particularly that small portion of the press which might have been viewed as critical? Well, I think there was a tendency in the case of uh, Reverend Wright, in the case of Bill Ayers, to, to Chicago people, uh, to, to say to the press, this is, this is not relevant. This is old news at best and irrelevant old news uh, while we're on the subject. And the press basically was willing to go along with that. In, in the Reverend Wright case, it wasn't important to know, you know what the relationship was between the two of them because we somehow thought that Barack Obama shared the Reverend Wright's views. Nobody thought, no, no sane person thought that. Nobody thought that Barack Obama, for instance, believe that white people created AIDS to kill black people. Uh, we don't, I don't think Barack Obama believed that. Or that 9-11 was or that appropriate retribution. That's right. Barack Obama didn't believe that. But we have to remember, most of us don't live in Chicago or in Illinois, and, and Barack Obama came out of nowhere for us. I mean, we couldn't even say his name in the beginning. Who was this fellow? And, and we did know that he had a minister who he thought very much of, who he had written about in his book, and who, uh, or his books, plural, and who uh, married him and, and, and baptized his children, and whom he considered his spiritual advisor. Well, then it becomes relevant to wonder, why would you sit in the church for 20 years with a demagogue like this? And then when he told us he never heard anything about this in 20 years, and he didn't just go on Christmas and, and, and Easter, but he never heard anything like this. He never was in the, in, the congreg in the pew on any of the times when the Reverend Wright said these crazy things. And he never heard it from any of the people who were there on that particular Sunday. I don't know. I, you know, I guess it's possible, but it strikes me as hard to believe. Uh, the media sort of let that go. As a matter of fact, the Reverend Wright would have never been a story were it not for the tapes. Once the tapes came out, 
even the big liberal newspapers that that didn't care much about the relationship couldn't avoid the story anyway. And it w wouldn't have been a big story, but for the action of a network with which you sometimes do some work, namely Fox News on television. Right. ABC's Brian Roth, the investigative reporter, got the tapes first, and then about a day or two later, Fox got them, and Fox ran them relentlessly. Uh, and and after they started running the tapes. Hillary started winning some of the primaries. And listen, if they had if they had found those tapes six months earlier, and by the way, they were on sale at the church, uh, I don't think Barack Obama would have gotten the nomination. I think Hillary would have, and she would have been the uh, probably been the president of the United of States. Of course, she was, a, she was a big loser in all of this. Once this loser. once this exploded and did set the Obama campaign back somewhat, there came that speech I think delivered in Philadelphia in which. Uh, Obama ad addressed it directly, and that speech was hailed by the American press, whether correctly or not, I really can't c clearly judge, but was hailed by the American press generally as something equivalent to uh, Martin Luther King's speech uh, 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 in Washington at the Lincoln Memorial, or perhaps, I don't know, to Lincoln's uh, second inaugural. Right. But you see, when Barack Obama said, and I don't know if it was in that speech or the one right after or the one right before, but when Barack Obama said, uh, I guess it was in the race speech. He said, I, I, can't, I can't forsake my minister. I've known him for 20 years. I, I couldn't do that any more than I could my, my own grandmother. And the media applauded that. They, 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 uh, they, they admired the loyalty and, the, and whatever else. And then when the, when the Reverend Wright just got too much, became too much of a pain in the rear end and he had to, and, and, and Barack Obama had to cut him loose, they applauded that. It was as if, you see, that's the troubling part. This book would merely be entertaining and at times very funny, except we have a media that excused just about everything. And now we have a stimulus package and we have a rough world out there and we have Iran that has enough nuclear uh, uh, material now to, to make a bomb. And I need to know that the media is going to be looking out for us and is going to be keeping an eye on this administration the way they would any administration. And I just wonder if they can, given how they fell in love with them. As I was reading through your book, I reached page 100, and I found... Uh, you, found a very, you, found, you found one of the few intelligent, thoughtful, not loud and crazy radio talk show hosts there. Well, I found... Thank you for uh, that. Why don't you tell that everybody who that was? Yes, I found my own name, and it was the reference to a night that will certainly live in memory, if not in infamy, uh, namely the night that um, Stanley Kurtz was here on this program reporting on his investigation into the operations of the um, Obama Ayers uh, partnership, as it may well have been, right. uh, at the uh, uh, the uh, the Chicago Annenberg Challenge. I would be very interested, if you don't mind, uh, Milt. And by the way, do you mind if I call you Milt? That's my name. Okay. Uh, and call me Bernie. I, I, I would be very much uh, – I'd like to hear how, how great the, the uh, campaign was after you had the audacity to have Stanley Kurtz on, the only reporter who was reporting stuff that you couldn't read in the New York Times or anyplace else about. Yeah. The uh, Ayers connection. Well, of course, on, uh, on that night we had invited the uh, Obama campaign to right. uh, 
present uh, the opposite view and to have somebody come into the studio and respond to Kurtz. They turned that down. Instead, they sent out an email to uh, their list of thousands, right. I guess, urging them to call and to denounce the station, to denounce me and to denounce my guest, Stanley Kurtz, uh, characterizing him as a vile, a slimy uh, rumor monger. Or, and this came or right worse. from the campaign. Yeah, they, they wrote the script and people called in uh, reading from the script, right. not, not doing it very well. Uh, I, was, I was truly amazed. Uh, in a way, I was almost amused. Um, what did happen, of course, was that um, they got some press and some attention, and we had about 150,000 downloads of that program uh, within uh, the following month. Uh, so obviously, it got some attention. What was more interesting to me, I, I thought at the time this was uh, a response made by somebody at uh, headquarters, which is just a quarter of a mile down the street on Michigan Avenue, national headquarters of the Obama campaign at the time. But I thought it was a decision taken by somebody there uh, while the others were off in, uh, in Denver doing their convention, in fact. But uh, three weeks later, we had on this fellow Ferdoso of the National Review who had done a book titled The Case Against Barack Obama. Right. Uh, this time we did invite, uh, we didn't go to the Obama campaign, but we went to other people we know. We got a bright, young, liberal Democrat lawyer uh, who has been on the program before, and we gave him the book to read. He came on to argue with Ferdosa, but they did the very same thing again. That is, the Obama campaign did it a second time around. Uh, and again, uh, prompted all sorts of people to call us and uh, defame us for doing this on the air. I don't know how you feel about this, but what I find almost as troubling is how you got support from from one of the papers in Chicago. They wrote a very nice editorial. The Sun Times did. You quoted. Uh, yeah, did, yeah, right. But this should have been an issue for the national media. Well, some people in the national media picked it up. I guess they were basically conservative columnists. Uh, John Fund picked it up. Right, but yeah, but 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 you see, the press should care. Yes. About this kind of thing. And, and that includes papers that have liberal editorial pages. I mean, you're not one of the crazies on radio. Not quite, no. Not quite, right. <laughs> I mean, this, you have discussions with people. I mean, and we have lots of we're liberal... having a discussion now that you may take for granted, but I don't, because I can't have this discussion on ABC News, NBC News, or mm. CBS News. Thank God for you and people like you. Let me put to you quickly uh, the crucial question. It's in the very term fairness doctrine. We know that they're going to, if they do it, it's not going to be the old fairness doctrine. They're going to do it in uh, a slightly more disguised way. But are they going to do it? What do you anticipate? Well, if you asked me this last week, I would have simply said no question they're going to try for it. Uh -huh. And the reason I would have said that is uh, because too many senators in too short a period of time, and then Bill Clinton... Uh, and then all came out in favor of it, along with the people who had been in favor of it before, like Nancy Pelosi. And then last Sunday, when, when David Axelrod, uh, the president's chief political advisor, was asked flat out. By the way, former frequent guest on this program when he was a reporter and then when he started doing his political work. Right. And when he, when he was asked flat out if, 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 if he could say that Barack Obama would not pursue this, he, he, he could not say that he would not pursue it. So I, I was absolutely convinced. Now I'm not absolutely convinced, but I'm, pre I'm, still, I'm still thinking that they may go for it. But here's how it's going to happen. It's gonna, they're not going to do it as uh, the not, way they no, did it last gonna, time. I think it's going to be something called localism. Exactly. Yeah. And in localism, it, that means that local organizations will have the right 
to come on and and come on like right after Rush Limbaugh and have their say about uh, issues of importance to them. And also you shortened the licensing period from eight years to from two years. From eight years to two years, yeah. right? And this is, this is the same thing as the Fairness Doctrine, but it goes of under course. a different name because ACORN will be on there. And, and they'll be giving their point of view the same way that a, a liberal talk show host would be, you know, forced on to, to compete with a conservative. Well, this is host. really rather close to violating the First Amendment, I would say. Well, I, th- I, I think uh, the Supreme Court would never uphold it. I think you're absolutely right. Well, about which that. Supreme Court? Uh, the one that sits now or the one that might be sitting two years from now? If it's two years from now, all bets are off. There you are. Now, now let me say this. Barack Obama just the other day. I think it was Wednesday, yeah, on Wednesday evening or Wednesday afternoon, uh, they issued a statement that the, the administration did saying that Barack Obama has no intention of bringing back the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, I know. Okay, as the Fairness Doctrine. I think that was a signal, in, in a way, to, to, to the uh, liberals in Congress saying, back off for now, yeah. because if you go through with this, we will not have one minute's worth of peace. This will be... The constant discussion on talk radio, it'll be on certain cable shows nonstop, mm-hmm. and we will never. And, and any hopes for having the so-called post-partisan presidency will be out the window. So back off. But that doesn't mean they're going to back off permanently. And it should be noted, of course, that the uh, the fairness doctrine is pointed towards only one mode of public communication, namely radio. Well, I'd love to... Not television, not newspapers. Do we have a minute for that now before a break? I want to come to it right after a newscast. Okay, yeah, because that's a very important point. The newscast is a bit overdue, and for that, too, the newsroom and Paula Cooper. And we return to Bernard Goldberg almost instantly, but first it is time, uh, at least it's a bit overdue, to invite telephone calls and email. The phone lines are now open. The number, of course, 591-7200. Extension... 720 at tribune.com is the email way to get to us. For phones, 312, then 591 7200. For email, extension 720 as one word at tribune, T R I B U N E dot com. Get your calls and emails in. We'll be with you in five minutes at the most. Uh, uh, any questions, or for that matter, any commentary that you've got? Uh, Bernie, back to you and to uh, the further comments you had on the whole question of the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine and the fact that it's pointed only at radio at the moment. Well, I think, I think in the original Fairness Doctrine, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it talked about the public airwaves, which means that technically it's Should about... be television as well, then. Yeah. Now, here's where you know that fairness has nothing to do with the Fairness Doctrine, and it's why I call the chapter in the book about this the Unfairness Doctrine. No. If they were really interested in fairness, they would have said, uh, well, during the campaign, the coverage was way more positive for for uh, Barack Obama than, than John McCain. So uh, do we want fairness to, to force the three networks to, to, uh, to be fairer to the Republican candidate? Earlier you asked for specifics, and, and I found them since during the break. Uh, the Project for Excellence in Journalism studied 2,400 stories during a crucial six-week period in the campaign, and they found that there were only 29% of the stories uh, were about Obama were negative, 29%, but 57% about McCain were negative. Well, that doesn't sound fair to me. Uh, uh, There was a study for the public affairs, uh, the Center for Media and Public Affairs at George Mason University. They found that uh, CBS News had 73% of the comments about 
uh, Obama were favorable, but only 31% about McCain were, were favorable. And, and it goes on and on and on. There's a million examples, okay? So would a new fairness doctrine, which liberals would like to see imposed, would that mean that the, the, that the government would have a right to go to ABC News, NBC News, and CBS News and say, you, you haven't been fair and you need to be fair? No, that's not what they have in mind. They only have one thing in mind. Uh, by the way, uh, while we're on the subject, are they going to go to PBS and say right after the Bill Moyers show, which is left-wing from beginning to end, we're, we demand, in, in, for fairness, that you have a conservative uh, program on? Of course not, because fairness has nothing to do with it. This is about power. This is about stifling conservative voices. And, and, and talk radio is the only place on the media landscape where conservatives dominate. And if they decide to go after this, and this is why I say Barack Obama, I think his political people said, let's send a signal to the liberals in Congress to back off. Because if they decide to pursue this, whether they call it localism or anything else, I'm telling you, the backlash is going to be tremendous, and they will not have a second's worth of peace. They and, will be savaged day and night on talk radio and on cable television. And might it affect them in the next congressional elections? Yeah, I, th I think it really might, because nothing will, will uh, energize the, the Republican base. Nothing. Nothing will energize it more than that. Bernie, I, um, it's more than time to go to the phones. Let's do that directly. 591-7200. And our first call is Tony in Atlanta. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Dr. Rosenberg. A great pleasure to speak with you again, and a tremendous honor to speak with one of my great heroes, Bernard Goldberg. Oh, thank Bernie, you. That's that's very, very kind of you. Hey, Bernie, I tell you what, you and me were probably around the same age, and I've been following uh, your career for many, many years. I'm 27. Uh, How old are you? Okay. <laughs> I'm pushing 54, my friend. Okay. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this, is that I am a media voyeur, and what I have seen in my uh, lifetime relative to uh, the media is uh, this incredible shift to uh, the left, as you have uh, accurately pointed out. Um, I see an incredible linkage uh, between, uh, you know, academia and uh, what they are teaching uh, children that are going into universities, uh, you know, in into the journalistic uh, field. Absolutely true. For for instance, I've got a 29-year-old who is a, uh, you know, an avid uh, journalist, uh, his own self. That is his avocation, and that's what he's uh, minoring in um, as he has resumed his collegiate career. And uh, you know, my younger son is also an avid writer. And um, all my two kids see here at uh, the university system of uh, Georgia is uh, liberalism. And the two of them are scratching their heads. And trust me, my wife, she is, you know, about as liberal as they come. She was born and bred in that uh, generation of uh, hippieism as right. I was. However, the real interesting thing is that, uh, you know, she has denounced uh, – you know, this whole women's liberation thing and all that, and her own personal liberalism. Um, she loves when you're on the Fox network, by the way. Tell, tell, her, tell her thanks. I, I, you see, the reason this means as much to me as it does is because after I spoke out against liberal bias at CBS, I lost a lot of friends. But for every friend I lost, I picked up a thousand, just like you, and, and I appreciate it. Let, me, let Our... me comment specifically about the journalism thing. Yes, do, please. There have been numerous studies numerous studies about the politics of, of various uh, professors on college campuses. And when you go to the journalism schools, it is so overwhelmingly 
Democratic and liberal over Republican and conservative, that it isn't funny. I mean, it's just overwhelmingly in that direction. And then kids are coming out of these schools, and, and here we go with another generation of, of, of people on the left. That's why my once tongue-in-cheek, ha-ha, attempted humor solution is now dead serious. Affirmative action for conservative journalists. With that, let's go on to another caller quickly, 591-7200, and to Pete here in Chicago. Good evening. Hello, Professor Rosenberg. Sir. Yes, I'd like the uh, guest to comment on the, on the possibility of the uh, national press covering Barack Obama the same way the local press uh, covered Mayor Daley in his first couple earlier terms where they gave him the benefit of the doubt. And it's only been in the last two or three years, four years or so. Where they... Difficulty on the line, I don't know why, but something's where they, wrong. Where they've really started to criticize uh, some of the things he's done and to really look at, you know, his patronage use and uh, uh, some of the corruption in City Hall that's been going on where he's looked the other way, particularly so because he's, uh, some of the people that were involved in his earlier uh, administration are now the main people in Barack Obama's administration. And the others are in jail. True. Yeah, and and that may be that may be the the example that we see coming up with the media and Barack Obama. Give him the benefit of the doubt in the beginning, and then get serious a little later on. What in the beginning, however, they portrayed on the stimulus package. It's a very important piece of legislation. They portrayed Republicans as obstructionists, and and that bothered me because isn't it possible that Republicans simply voted against this because they thought it was a bad idea. Yet on ABC News, they talked about, I have the exact quote here, Charlie Gibson was on, the, the anchor on ABC News, and he said, he said, not one Republican voted for it, the stimulus package. He's right. And then he said, turning a cold shoulder to the president's appeal for bipartisan support. See, the Republicans turned a cold soldier on C shoulder on, on CBS the reporter said Republicans relentlessly attacked the bill despite the president's extraordinary efforts to get bipartisan support. The New York Times ran a page one story over the weekend, this past weekend, about how the president offered a Republican congressman a ride on Air Force One to his home district, where the president was going to, and how did the congressman repay him? He voted against the stimulus package. That whole story was framed as, as if Republicans were obstructionists and Barack Obama was trying as hard as he could to get bipartisan support. They never gave the Republicans credit for voting their conscience. And that's what I worry about. Um, I've got an interesting thing here that I want to read to you, an email from a regular listener of ours in Australia. Uh, we reached Australia on the Internet at around uh, midday, and so we've got uh, listeners scattered uh, along uh, uh, I suppose, either coastal area where the cities are. And here's a Mike in Sydney, whom we've heard for, from before, who says, I've been looking forward to hearing Mr. Goldberg. He is seen here in Australia on the Fox News Channel. He's a legend. I have all his books. Mr. Goldberg's assessment regarding the media's blind love for President Obama is spot on. And one could multiply that love 10 times over when it comes to the Australian media's crush over Mr. Obama. Well, I'm I'm still stuck on the fact that I'm a legend in Australia. If that's even vaguely true, you know, I'm I mean I'm going to be floating on that one for a month. Uh, and, and by the way, you know what? I've been around a long time, uh, Dr. Rosenberg. I've been around a long time, 
And I think it's because I come from a blue-collar family and grew up in a tenement in the Bronx that I'm amazed that there are people in Australia that are watching, that listen to what I'm saying, that agree with – I mean, well, listen, I, just, I, I know I sound naive and I sound like a little kid, but I'm, I'm just blown away by this. Well, you know, I grew up in a tenement in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, you, and, you know, uh, so you know what I'm talking I'm about. I'm equally amazed when uh, I hear from people like Mike. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and uh, I think, I think what he, the point he's making is that a lot of people are mesmerized by this man. And when, as I say, when regular folks are mesmerized by him, that's up to them. That's up to them. But when, but when journalists are mesmerized by a politician, I start to worry. Because when you fall in love with anybody, let's take this out of the realm of journalism, fall in love with your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girl, I don't care who it is, you're no longer objective about that person. That's the problem. Hey, listen, here's another thing, email I've got. We're about to stop for our last round of commercials, but this one makes a very interesting point. Um, I noticed early signs of the love affair around the 2004 primary. At that time, the press seemed unable to say Obama's name without preceding it with, quote, rising star. Yes. I would be interested if you had noticed this and would like to hear your comments. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I'm going to impress myself here. I have an actual statistic on that. 30 times uh, on network television during the campaign, they used the term either rising star, emerging star, or rock star. Yeah. 30 times. And uh, NBC News used it about half of the 30 times. Uh, and, the, and the correspondent covering Barack Obama, the hard news correspondent, used the term, I think it was just, just rock star, three times. And after, and you know, look, I understand that he was popular. I understand that. But I don't want the emotion of the crowd to affect the journalist. Yeah. Barack Obama was aloof and, and, and detached from the passions of the crowd. He was cool. They were, they were not cool. Journalists well, I think, were I think like the, the crowd. The aloofness is part of the attraction, I would exactly, say. Exactly, exactly. But journalists were part of, they had the same emotion of the crowd. You know, it, it's like what Mike was talking about or what I'm talking about in the book. We've all noticed it. We've all noticed this, this infatuation, this ad, ad, adoration. And... And when, when it's with regular voters and regular people or people in Australia who can't vote in this election, okay. But when journalists share the same emotions, how are they going to cover them? Um, <laughs> an excellent question, perfectly phrased. And uh, we will uh, keep it in mind as we continue right after we pause for these words. If you are in the political mood, as we are certainly tonight, uh, and if that persists till tomorrow, you will surely want to join us on the program tomorrow night when all of the last 12 presidents of the United States will be here on the program in a manner of speaking, all the way from FDR to, indeed, Barack Obama, will be represented brilliantly by our brilliant friend and one of the most talented people I know, Bill Melberg, who is a presidential mimic uh, and who has appeared every place around the country and elsewhere in other countries and, of course, has had a command performance or two in the White House itself. Bill Melberg and FDR and all the rest up to Barack Obama tomorrow night on Extension 720. Tonight it's Bernard Goldberg as we draw from his very important book, A Slobbering Love Affair, and we go directly back to the phones and indeed to Matt in Rockford. Good evening. You're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. I'm just calling in response to uh, the repetition of the pro 
fallacy of uh, the supposed liberal media. I always find it hilarious when uh, they cite evidence such as the flawed studies of Mr. Goldberg's. Uh, What it comes down to is sometimes repeating the facts may wind up being positive, they may wind up being negative. If you want to compare repetition of Sarah Palin not being able to remember what, what magazine she reads as being negative and then argue pointing out that the crowd size Barack Obama brought in were positive and that proves that they're somehow balanced, that's just crazy. I, then it, they also like to cite the issues with uh, the college professors. You know what? If you're liberal or Democrat, two plus two equals four. It doesn't matter what your voter registration is for most uh, uh, for most uh, of the things you may teach at the college level. It's just uh, oversimplifications and an attempt to generalize into nothingness. I think, Bernie, that's a critical comment. Your response? It's a critical comment, but one I disagree with. First of all, just so you know, I didn't do the studies. These were these were social scientists who did the studies. Social and scientists with Republican backgrounds. What's that? Social scientists with Republican backgrounds. Now, you see that? Now, that's the closed-mindedness that I was talking about earlier. You're absolutely wrong about that. Sir, if you go on shouting while we're trying to you're, respond you're to you, I'll have to cut you off. You're absolutely wrong about that. But that's also an example of what I was talking about earlier, about how the the two sides of the same coin, about how you can't criticize – I'm not criticizing Barack Obama. I want to make that clear. But you can't criticize anything even associated with him, in this case the media, without getting an observation that they have Republican ties. They don't. You, the caller is wrong about that. We'll give, the caller, we'll give the caller another half minute for a further response. Go ahead, sir. Well, I, I just want to say you complain about closed-mindedness, uh, Mr. Goldberg. Is that the same open-mindedness you showed when you threatened to uh, take a baseball bat to the editorial writers at the New York Post as to what you would do if they had disagreed with uh, you the way that they disagreed with Bill O'Reilly? New York Times. Is that Times. that kind of open, open-mindedness there? It was the New York Times. What is he talking about? He said the New York Post. What, what happened was the New York Times, I mean, this, this is a Keith Olbermann devotee. Uh, the New York Times suggested that Bill O'Reilly was a racist because of his position on illegal immigration. I know Bill O'Reilly. You don't have to agree with his point of view. You don't even have to like his style. He's not a racist. He's just not a racist. And he said to me, and, and by the way, it's hard for people who aren't in the public eye to understand what that's like to open up a newspaper like the New York Times and read that you're a racist, you know? So it really, it really shook him up and it, it disturbed him, and I think rightly so. And he said to me, what, uh, what would you have done if, uh, if, if you opened the New York Times and you read that you were a racist? And I offhandedly said, and the caller was right, except I said about the Times, not the Post. He got it absolutely right. I said, well, I would have taken a baseball bat and gone down to the New York Times and said hello to somebody, but that's me. And then I went on to the, the real subject at hand. Now, if, if the suggestion is that, therefore, I'm a violent guy who takes baseball bats to people, well, in my entire life, I've never done that in real life, so I don't think we should take that too seriously. I gather the comment uh, uh, comes from Olbermann. That's his response to your book, is it? Uh, no, no, Olbermann it pointed this out to to um, to the part of America that didn't see the O'Reilly show. He he, he he pointed that out in a in a segment one night. But the the other point uh, about the caller and and we can disagree on things, but they, trust me, they're not Republican 
uh, people in these studies. They're just not. The Pew Research Center is a middle-of-the-road group. The Project for Excellence in Journalism is a middle-of-the-road well, group. The Pew Research Center is a major resource for American journalism. Well. Right. So, 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 so uh, on that point, the caller, of course. Uh, I respectfully tell the caller, on that point, he's wrong. But on the bigger point, again, his gripe isn't with me. It's with the American people because 90% of Republicans and 62% of Democrats and, and uh, independents, and the aggregate number was 70% of all uh, registered voters in the poll, thought the media rolled over for Barack Obama. Now, I don't know, you're part of the 30% who didn't. Okay, that's fair enough. But it isn't a beef with me. I mean, don't shoot the messenger. Bernie, time is short. Let's work in one or two more quick calls. And here is the next from uh, Richard in... Chicago, good evening. You're on the air. Yes. Uh, my question is, why do you think that the radio is more conservative, I think which you agree with, uh, I mean, the Rush Limbaugh's, and the uh, television is uh, more uh, liberal? That's a great why? question. That's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer, but I think, I think in terms of radio, anyway, uh, they saw what worked. And what, I'm defining what worked as what worked in for economically, what, what got ratings and what brought in money. And conservative talk worked whereby uh, liberal talk hasn't worked. And I, I think the reason, one of the reasons liberal talk hasn't worked is that people can get liberal points of view in a million other places. They can't get conservative points of view in all that many other places. Uh, on television, I think the only thing that Trump's uh, ratings and money is ideology because their ratings have been dropping for years. Part of that is the advent of cable television and satellite television. But part of that is people said, I'm tired of this slanted newscast. I'm going to go someplace else. And some went to C-SPAN. You'd be surprised how many people get their news from C-SPAN. Some went to Fox where they wanted a different kind of bias, you know, a, 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 a right-leaning bias. Uh, but I don't know any other business besides the media, television media, where they care less about their customers. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. Their ratings have been dropping like a rock for the past 25, 30 years, and yet they don't even try to go down the middle where they might get some people back. When Dan Rather retired, they replaced Dan Rather with somebody that conservatives dislike even more than they like dislike Dan Rather. They could have gone for somebody like Britt Hume, and they might have gotten a whole chunk of people who deserted CBS, but they don't even think in those terms. So radio, they found out that conservative talk works, and then they cloned it. And, and television, they just ideology trumps everything else, and that's why they haven't gone in that direction. Well, that's so interesting. Ideology then trumps even profit, does it? Yeah, it's, it's odd. It's odd, and, and, and I'm willing to... I'm willing to hear an argument that I'm wrong about this because I may be, but it's the only thing I can come up with because nobody, I don't want a conservative newscast. I want to make that clear. I do not want a conservative newscast, but if they tried to, to, to bring in more conservative views and, and show more respect for middle American conservative values, they might make more money. And yet they choose not to do that. It's really quite interesting. If they were selling shoes instead of news, they'd be out of business by now. At one point in Cronkite's last year, in 19, early 1981, 
of the three network television newscasts, 75% of the people watching television during the dinner hour were watching one of the network newscasts. When I wrote Bias in December of 2001, it was down to 41, from 75% to 41%, and now it's down into the 30s. That's not a good business model. Fascinating. Bernie, we're just about out of time. I thank you very much for staying up late on the East Coast to I, join us. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed a civil, sensible discussion on radio. You're doing God's work. Thank well, you. Next time you're in Chicago, for heaven's sake, come by and let's do something uh, here in the studio. I, I would really love to do that. I look forward to it. Thanks okay. again. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that is, and that was, Bernard Goldberg. The book we've been drawing from by him is A Slobbering Love Affair, the uh, true and pathetic story of the torrid romance between Barack Obama and the mainstream media. Wonderful title. Uh, the longest one of the year, I think, as well. And uh, thanks for some very fine uh, calls and emails. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them, the program being a bit on the short side tonight. Only an hour and a half instead of the usual two. We will be with you for the full two hours tomorrow with the great Bill Melberg and all of those presidents since and including FDR and up to Barack Obama. Until tomorrow at nine, again, thanks to all for listening and a most cordial good night. <laughs>